You are My beloved Son. In You I am well pleased. Immediately, the Spirit impelled Him to go out into the wilderness. And He was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And He was with the wild beasts. And the angels were ministering to Him. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the Gospel of God and saying, the time is filled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. And as He was going along by the Sea of Galilee, He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And He said to them, follow Me and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed Him. Going on a little farther, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. This is a big chunk of Scripture. Lots happening. We see four events in this passage of Scripture. We see the baptism of Jesus in verses 9-11. through We see the temptation of Jesus in verses 12 and 13. We see Jesus beginning to preach in verses 14 and 15. And we see Jesus calling His first disciples in verses 16 to 20. My message this morning is entitled, Here Comes Jesus, because that's what happens. He's he's come on the scene just just right away and he, He begins His ministry, if you will, publicly in His baptism. He goes away in His temptation. He goes back, begins to preach, begins to call His disciples, and just begins to launch His ministry. Here comes Jesus. Now, this is a big chunk of Scripture. I know that my tendency is to take each of these incidents in itself and just preach it as it stands. A message on His baptism, a message on His temptation, a message on His beginning message, a message on His disciples and calling them. And yet, Mark pushes us on to go more quickly. Four times in this passage, the word immediately comes up. Verse 10, look at it there. Immediately coming out of the water, Jesus saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon Him. Verse 12, immediately the Spirit impelled Him to go out into the wilderness. Verse 18, immediately they left their nets and followed Him. Verse 20, immediately He called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow Him. It's just this this, uh, pace that just keeps going and just, just immediately. And I feel... That we just, we just need to get on with Mark with a sense of, of urgency. In fact, Mark is, is urgent throughout the whole Gospel. Some 11 times this Greek word, euthos, is used here in the chapter 1 of Mark. Just, just pressing us on. Keeping us going. And so this morning, we're going to drive on looking at the four events that open the ministry of the life of Jesus. His baptism, His temptation, His preaching, and the call of His disciples. So I want to first begin with His baptism. Now, by way of outline here, I, I've given you, if you look there on a sheet of paper in our bulletin, if you, not, it's okay. But I've just, I've just outlined the things in His baptism, in His temptation, right? in His preaching, and in His calling of the disciples. And then there's more of a point of application for us. That will come later in my, each of my points. So you need to pay attention and, and catch all of those. But here, first of all, His temptation begins here in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus really comes from nowhere. 
Here comes Jesus. Basically from nowhere, He comes on the scene. No mention of His genealogy. No mention of His birth. No mention of His parents. We merely get reference to the hometown of Jesus, the city of Nazareth, which, by the way, is so obscure it's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. And yet, here He comes in the region of of Galilee, which is up north of Jerusalem, about 60 miles or so to the north. Nazareth didn't have the greatest reputation in the world. In fact, Nathaniel said of Nazareth, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Just kind of despised and despicable was a city there. But Jesus came from, and He came to be baptized in the Jordan River. He made the trek from, from uh, western Israel over to the east, along the, the Jordan River, wherever John the Baptist was, found him and was baptized by him. Now, if you're anything like me, immediately a big question comes to mind. Why was Jesus baptized? When John appeared in the wilderness, he was preaching a baptism of repentance. In other words, John was baptizing those who were repentant, those who acknowledged their sins, were turning from their sins, who were making a turn in life to follow the Lord rather than their own ways. And that's clear from verse 5, even if you see it there. They were baptized by Him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So as people were confessing their sins, they were in the Jordan and John was dunking them. It's a sign of their washing and cleansing that they knew. And yet Jesus comes, Jesus the one who knew no sin, the, the one who had no sin to confess, and He came to be baptized by John. I mean, the testimony of Scripture is clear that Jesus was sinless. First John 3.5, you know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. First Peter 2.22, He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. Hebrews 4.15 We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Perhaps you remember when when Pilate sentenced Jesus to death, it wasn't because Jesus had committed some crime. In fact, it was because the crowd forced His hand. And when Pilate finally decided to hand Him over, He said, I find no guilt in Him. And handing him over, he even took a bowl of water and washed his hands and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. Pilate was saying, Jesus is an innocent man. He shouldn't die. So why was Jesus baptized by John if John's baptism is a baptism of repentance and Jesus was sinless and had no reason for repentance? Well, Mark gives us no explanation. He just merely mentions it and goes on. Look at there verse 9. Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And he just continues on. And, and I debated whether I should just even get into this question or not, but because Mark didn't get into this question. But it's a big enough question in my mind. It's always been. It's probably in yours as well. And know that it was in John's mind as well. In Matthew's account, you'll find John asking this question. Right When Jesus came to be baptized by him, John, it says, Matthew 3.14, tried to prevent him saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? John knew that baptism didn't work for Jesus. He, he knew that Jesus was far more righteous than John. And, and John felt that Jesus should baptize him, and so he sought to prevent him from being baptized. And yet the response of Jesus was enough to convince John to baptize him, and so I think it ought to be enough for us. Jesus said this, Matthew 3.15, it's the key to understanding the baptism of Jesus. Jesus said, Permit it at this time, for in this way it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
For in this way, in John, in your baptizing of me, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus saw His baptism as a righteous act that He wanted to do to fulfill righteous requirements. Now, obviously, the baptism of Jesus was unique. At no other baptism did the heavens open up. At no other baptism did the Holy Spirit come down like a dove. And at no other baptism did a voice from heaven come and speak. I think that speaks to the uniqueness of Jesus' baptism, that it was different than all others. But it was to fulfill all righteousness. And here's the key to the baptism of Jesus. My point number one, in the baptism of Jesus, He identified with us. That's the takeaway, is that He became like us and He was... He was righteous in every way. It's not that Jesus needed to be baptized for His own sake. It's that Jesus needed to be baptized for our sake. To identify with us and to allow God to identify Him as the Messiah. In other words, when Jesus came to put on flesh and blood, it wasn't merely that He'd put on the flesh like us, but it was more it's that He would share entirely in our existence. Sharing our struggles, our burdens, directing us in the path of righteousness, directing us the way that we should go. And one of those paths were baptism. It's a sign of repentance. And so I repeat again, if you have repented of your sins and not been baptized, you ought to be baptized. So come and and talk with me. Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness as a model for us to follow. And I'm not going to force you. I'm not going to push you. But I'm going to be a little bit like John, the River Jordan. Just put it out there. Say, if you've repented, believed, trust in Christ, you should be baptized. Come talk to me. Well, verse 10. We see the approval of God upon the baptism of Jesus. Immediately coming up out of the water. Obviously, then He was immersed in the waters. Coming up out of the water, He saw, that's Jesus saw, the heavens opening and a Spirit like a dove descending upon Him. This dove comes down. This is the Holy Spirit in the manner of the dove. And a voice came out of the heavens. You are My beloved Son. In You I am well pleased. You get a sense there from that word um, immediately that when Jesus was sopping wet with the water of the Jordan River, He looked up and saw these things take place. The question comes to your mind, what, what do these three things mean? What does it mean the heavens are open? What does it mean the Spirit descending? And what does it mean the voice came out of heaven? Well, we'll spend a little bit of time on each of these. That The heavens breaking up, as one commentator said, I think is good, reflects a metaphor for God breaking into human existence. Just when the heavens are spread apart like that, it's always that God comes. In the Scriptures, we see this on several occasions. Um, and in each occasion when it does, it has to do with, with opening up so God comes. Like, for instance, Isaiah 64.1, the prayer, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, you would rip them apart and come down. And you read the rest of Isaiah 64, and it's to judge the enemies of God and to rescue the righteous. Or in Revelation chapter 6, verse 12, when the sixth seal was finally opened up, the sky was split apart like a scroll when it was rolled up, and God was coming down to judge the world in His wrath. But in judging the world in His wrath, He is also saving and protecting and preserving those who believe and trust in Him. So it's a metaphor for God coming, which is exactly what Jesus did. God was breaking into human existence in Jesus. Well, the the Spirit descending like a dove, I, I think this has a symbol of the anointing power of God that came upon Jesus. In the Old Testament, God often came in the Spirit to anoint people with power such as Samson and Saul and David. 
Same with Jesus. Took place His baptism. Peter would later say, commenting upon this, God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power and God was with Him. That took place the baptism of Jesus. Thirdly, the voice from heaven is none other than God the Father. You are My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Really sets up the entire ministry of Jesus. God has set His approval on the Son. He approved of Jesus' baptism. He approved of everything that Jesus had done. And He approved of everything Jesus will do. A son can do a wrong in the Father's eyes. Oftentimes. And you'll see that. Fathers will defend their children. And here is God defending His child. Though Jesus didn't need much defending, He was perfect already and would continue to be perfect as He knew so. But He said, this is My beloved Son. And this takes us back to some Old Testament passages. You start thinking about the Son. Darren Weeby read for us in the morning service from Psalm 2. Worship the Son. That's the whole idea about the Anointed One is the Son. Kind of brings that back to remembrance. That's why He chose that text. Also, Isaiah 42, verse 1. Listen to the phraseology of that. Exactly what was happening here. Isaiah says this, Behold, My servant whom I uphold, My chosen one in whom My soul delights, I have put My Spirit upon Him. You see that that's one of the suffering servant passages in Isaiah. It's where the servant is coming and suffering. And this is one anointed with the Spirit. God is well pleased delights in Him, and is preparing the way of different servant psalms in, servant songs in Isaiah. He's going to speak about the servant who's going to come and suffer for our sins, going to bear our sorrows and, and carry our griefs, take our iniquity upon Himself, being the servant who saves. It's kind of all, all wrapped up into that. If you, if you kind of catch that and you look in hindsight, you say, oh, Jesus was the suffering servant and He's the one who was anointed. Fits nicely into Mark. He is the servant who saves. Now, before we leave this scene, I just do need to make a few comments, particularly about the the Trinity. Because we do see that here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all together in one place. And it's significant because the way that Godhead works is one God and three persons. It's not one God and three manifestations like some believe. It's called modalism. It says that God the Father is God the Son, is God the Spirit, just in different forms. It's alive and well today in the church. It's wrong. It's heresy. You cannot believe that and be a believer in Christ because you're believing in a false Christ. See, Jesus is no Bruce Wayne who's a wealthy businessman by day, but by night he travels apart in Gotham City and rescues damsels in distress. This Batman captures the Joker and the Riddler. Jesus is no Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter by day, but in his side job, he's Superman. No, this isn't Jesus who just morphs himself. It is three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here we see them, all three, at the same place, at the same time. One God, three persons. So that's one comment about the Trinity, what to believe about that. Second comment has to do this. When the Spirit came upon Jesus, it didn't change Him. Now, it anointed Him, it empowered Him, but it didn't change His being or His standing with God. There are some who believe in a doctrine called adoptionism, in which they say Jesus became the Son at His baptism. He wasn't the Son before, but He became the Son. In this sense, Jesus was adopted at His baptism. Only then when God abandoned Him at the cross, He kind of revoked that. That's adoptionism and that is wrong as well. It's heretical. 
Jesus wasn't adopted as Son. He always was the Son. Even as Psalm 2 spoke about, Isaiah 48 speaks about, He's always the Son. And when the Spirit came upon Jesus at His baptism, He just anointed Him for His messianic role. I think that's the significance of all those things. So at His baptism, Jesus identified Himself with us as God identified Him as the Messiah and anointed Him. Well, let's look at His temptation. And I'll give you how I work out that point in a little bit later. But this temptation is in verses 12 and 13. Is Jesus coming. He's baptized first. Immediately, the Spirit impelled Him to go out into the wilderness. And He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And He was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to Him. Uh, Again, there's a lot that could be said here about the temptation. When Matthew writes about the temptation, it takes him 11 verses to write about the temptation. When Luke writes about the temptation, it's 13 verses to write about it. Mark sums it all up in two. Matthew and Mark, furthermore, focus on some specific temptations that come upon Jesus, particularly at the end of His temptation. Mark gives no particular examples, but what Mark tells us is helpful and it is sufficient for us. We see here in verse 12 that the Spirit impelled Jesus to go out in the wilderness. The Greek there is ekbalo. He threw Him out. Literally, the Spirit threw Jesus out into the wilderness. The NIV is a bit soft here when it just says, sent Him out. It doesn't catch the force or the, the violence of that word. The ESV is good. It drove Him out. That is good. Just, just pushed Jesus, compelled Him to get into the wilderness so that He might be tempted. What a way to start your ministry, right? The Holy Spirit anoints you and then boom, you're just thrown to the lions, if you will. Once he's identified as Messiah, anointed, instantly go out into the wilderness with the wild beasts to face a difficult trial. You say, so why is that? I mean, isn't, isn't God for us for our good? Why, why would God put us in a situation where we would be tempted? Or why would God put Jesus in a situation where we would be tempted? Well, Jesus underwent the path that all of God's servants undertake. Anonymous wrote a poem that said this, <clears throat> When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when He yearns with all His heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world should be amazed, watch His methods, watch His ways. How He ruthlessly perfects whom He royally elects. How He hammers him and hurts him with mighty blows converts him. Into trial shapes of clay which only God understands while His tortured heart is crying and He lifts beseeching hands. How He bends but never breaks when His good He undertakes. How He uses whom He chooses and which every purpose fuses Him by every act induces Him to try His splendor out. God knows what He's about. It's a poem there that just speaks about when God's going to use a man, He's first going to put him in the crucible of difficulties first. And what happened to Jesus actually happens to every servant of God, every saint of God. Really, for more effective service, John 15, the branch that bears much fruit, he will prune so he'll grow greater fruit. And that's what's happening here, is that Jesus is going out, being pruned, being tested, being tried. I do believe it was calculated to strengthen Jesus. Hebrews 5.8 says, Although He was a son, He learned obedience from the things which He suffered. 
and suffering here in the wilderness and temptation, he learned obedience and was strengthened by it. And here we see Jesus all alone. That's the point. He's in the wilderness. No one else is. He's at his weakest point and being attacked by the strongest foe in the universe and he comes out victorious. Now, it is interesting to note that Mark doesn't say that he was victorious or he, he never sinned in any way. Only the few details of what happened in the wilderness. Only there was, was a rugged place where the wild beasts are. Only that Jesus was strengthened by angels while he was there in the wilderness. And Mark merely says, if you look carefully there in verse 12, verse 13, he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. It's all you see. All you catch there is that there are 40 days of just continual pounding temptation coming upon Jesus. And as Matthew and Luke say that he didn't eat while he was there, and getting weaker and weaker and continuing to pound and continuing to pound, continuing to pound. You think about those who undergo torture. And at first they might have the strength to hold up, but when the sleepless nights and days come and when the hunger deprivation comes, right? Tortured victims give in and here was Jesus being tortured and pounded for 40 days by the strongest of tempters himself, the devil, the diabolos. In fact, he even uses his name by Satan himself, identifying the chief demon of demons. And he was victorious. Because we know that from Luke and Matthew say he was victorious. When they talked about even the three temptations that took place at the end of his life. Command this bread... Command the stone to become bread. Jesus responded with Scripture. Lifted up on a high pinnacle, all the mountains I'll give you if you worship me. He says, no, you worship the Lord your God only. How about put yourself on the pinnacle and fall down and let the angels follow you? He said, no, no, no. The Scripture says don't put the Lord your God to the test. These are just indicative of all the different types of, of uh, temptations that Jesus faced. Because it says here in Mark that He was being tempted by Satan just the, the whole time for 40 days. And 40 nights, every day, Satan probably visited him, trying to break him down. Jesus never succumbed to any of these temptations, demonstrating his power over Satan, qualifying him to be our Messiah, or as I have said it this morning, my point, in his temptation, Jesus conquered for us. I do believe that's the point of his temptation here, that, that since he himself was tempted and that which he has suffered... He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. He can sympathize with us who are tempted in all things because He was tempted in all things we are, yet never sinned. There's a sense where your temptation comes. If you give in to that temptation, then the temptation goes away because you've sinned. But there's a sense of Jesus, as He never gave in to that temptation, continued to endure that temptation all until the end, and only then at the end did he feel the relief that comes through a righteous life. Jesus went through all of that. He's qualified to be our Messiah and he can come to our, our aid when we are tempted. And by way of application, I mean, this is really easy, right? Just draw near to him who is able to give grace. Receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus has conquered Satan's deepest attacks. And He can surely help all of us when we are under attacks of temptation. So in your sin, in your temptations to sin, in your struggles, look to Jesus and say, God, Jesus, 
You went through this. Help me now. Be my help. And watch God pull through so you can overcome your temptation. I think that's the point of the temptation of Jesus. He conquered for us. Well, thirdly, let's look at His preaching. We've seen His baptism, His temptation. Now let's look at His preaching. Two short verses inaugurating His preaching ministry. And they are good because they do sum up all His message. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the Gospel of God and saying, the time is filled, the Kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the Gospel. We see another location word here, still Galilee, still in the north. Jerusalem, by the way, is in the south. Still in the north in, in Galilee. The morning star John had faded. The sun, Jesus Christ, had come into full view. Takes him into Galilee, some 80 miles north of Jerusalem. He knew the area well. He grew up in Nazareth, some, I forget how many, 15 miles maybe away from the region of Galilee. He certainly was around there. Begins with a time account as well. Puts just everything in historical context after John had been taken into custody. John had been taken into custody by Herod, as we'll find out in chapter 6, because he was telling Herod that the wife that he had was not a lawful wife, was making a stand on marriage, divorce. At that point is when Jesus came forth. Now, you need to know here between verse 13 and 14, probably about a year elapses. You can pick that year up in John, chapters 1 through 4 essentially, when the ministry of of John the Baptist and Jesus... um, Overlap. Perhaps you remember there in John where, where um, uh, John's disciples here, there are many, Jesus was baptizing more disciples than they, and the kind of interaction back and forth, and John's taken into custody, and Jesus goes to Galilee to preach. But Mark, as typical, is just getting to the point, and his point is the preaching of Jesus. Jesus came preaching. This was his task. This is what he was called to do. In fact, look at how, look at how much he was called to do this. Look at over there in verse 37. Jesus, you got to catch the context here. He's, he's healing everybody. They're coming to Him. Great, great miracles are taking place in Jesus. And, and then He goes out to a secluded place. Verse 35. He was praying there. Simon was looking for Him all around. How they found Him in a secluded place, I'm not sure, but they found Him. And they said to Him, verse 37, everyone's looking for you. Of course, because they've been healed. And they're sick people. And they want help. And he said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. Jesus said when he came, he came to preach. Yes, he healed, but that wasn't his primary calling. His primary calling was, was preaching. And that's what he did. Verse 39, and he went into all the synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. It kind of came second. So you put, what's, what's more important? Is preaching or is casting out demons? It's preaching is far more important. Casting out demons is like healing a, a physical sickness. But, but preaching heals the spiritual sickness that lasts forever. Yes, we help in the physical realm like Jesus did, but the spiritual realm is where the priority is because that lasts forever. And that's what Jesus said. I, I've come to preach. And He had a message summarized up there in verse 14. It's the Gospel of God. Articulated in verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. 
Repent and believe in the Gospel. The beginning of the Gospel has begun. The time is right. All has been prepared. The prophecies of John the Baptist had come about and John pointed to Jesus. He had been identified as the one to come. He had been baptized. He had been tempted. And now he's strong and ready to go on his ministry. What's curious about this message is really the same message John the Baptist preached, right? It was a baptism of repentance. Mark gives us no detail what was there, but a baptism of repentance implies that he's preaching repentance. Repent for the forgiveness of your sins and be baptized as a sign of that forgiveness. But what's interesting is here, it's, it's not even so much just the message of John, it's the message of all the prophets all down through the ages. J.C. Ryle said it well. He said, This is that old sermon which all the faithful witnesses of God have continually preached from the very beginning of the world. From Noah down to the present day, the burden of their sermon has always been the same. Repent and believe. The same sermon all over the Bible. It's been preached long before. It's preached in Jesus' day. And we preached for years to come, Lord willing. And Jesus, though, adds a few things to His context to, to make His preaching just a, a little bit unique. And most of them have to do with, with the time and with His presence. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. This, by the way, was not the message of the faithful years before Christ. The, their message has always been this. The time is coming, so repent and believe. But now Jesus could say, since He is there, the time is fulfilled. The, the anticipation of the Old Testament now has dawned. It is the coming of the New Age. Jesus the Messiah was now on the scene. These words really bring an urgency to the message. Do you remember the message that, was, um, that Jonah brought to Nineveh? Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. There's a 40-day time frame. If they're ever going to repent, they're going to repent in those 40 days. And repent they did because they knew their time was short. Or maybe you remember what Manasseh, the wicked king of Judah, did when he was taken captive by hooks in his mouth to a Babylonian jail. It's while he was there in jail that he cried out to the Lord. He repented from his sin because he knew his time was short. He may have been killed. He believed in the Lord. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles 33. And there's an urgency to to Jesus and His request here. When, when the time is fulfilled, it, it, it's right at the end. The kingdom is near. The, there's no time to pass this by. The king is near. It's time to repent. It reminds me of the story. Maybe some of you have heard this. I probably told it to some of you. Of our refrigerator. About a year and a half ago, um, our refrigerator started making this clunk sound. So you know how it goes. And it's supposed to go. And then when it needs to get cold again, it's supposed to go, and ours went, clunk. And then went, clunk. And so I asked Mr. Google, I said, so what's, what's up with this? And Mr. Google said, well, your compressor going bad. He said, it could uh, go out tomorrow or it could last another three years. But it's, it's coming. And so we endured a year of clunk clunk. But then about six months ago, it went clunk! Clunk! And so we started looking into it and Mr. Google said the same thing basically. Well, it could go out any minute or it could go for a while yet. 
some of the springs in the compressor aren't, aren't working quite right. And uh, I remember I wrote a, wrote a blog entry and kind of describing what was happening. And I, I said, you know what, our refrigerator is going to die, but we don't know exactly when. But we're going to like pull this thing out just like as long as we can. And um, then as, as long, and then someday it's going to die, and then we're going to rush to the store to buy a refrigerator, even if it's not really our choice, and rush it in, and we're going to lose all the food in the refrigerator. And I started thinking as I wrote this thing, I said, that is silly. That is a wrong way to live. It's a wrong way to go about things. If you know it's going to die, deal with it now. I mean, almost save for it in the food that we lost in the refrigerator. So we went out about six months ago and uh, bought a new refrigerator and could change the, the food all nicely. And now our refrigerator goes, you can come over and listen to it sometime. I'd be glad to, glad to share that with you. But, but here is Jesus when He says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. He's saying, clunk! He's saying, it's time to repent. Today is the day. The time of procrastination is over. Don't put off your repentance because repentance tomorrow is not repentance. Because tomorrow never comes. The King is here. It's hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Don't delay. Now, what I love about this message is that God doesn't tell us to repent for no good reason at all. God... God tells us to repent and believe because it's good for us. It will lead us to life. It's always led people to life and it will always lead people to life. And, and that's really the wording of my third point. In His preaching, Jesus led us to life. And that's really at the end of what repenting and believing in the Gospel is. Repenting and believing in the, in the good news. And whenever anybody's repented, He's given them life. When Nineveh repented, God gave them life. He didn't destroy that generation but backed away. When Manasseh repented, God gave him life and restored him back to Judah miraculously. When the people of Judah repented at the hearing of John the Baptist, God gave them life. When Job repented, God gave him life, restored everything for him. In fact, even double. When Israel repented after the failure of Ai, God gave them life and they conquered it the next time. When David repented at his moral failure, God gave him life. When Judah repented after the exile, God gave them life. That's always the pattern. Repentance and faith are the path to life. Near lunchtime, when the lunch has been prepared and it's time for us to eat, at our house we get this bell and we just, bing, we ring the bell. It says, come and eat, the feast is prepared. Well, so likewise, this is the call here. It's a call to come and feast at the banquet of God. It's a come to call. It's, it's a call to come and enjoy the living waters that God supplies by turning from your sin and repenting and believing in the gospel of God. Now, this call to repent and believe really two sides of one one coin. The, the, the first to turn is to turn away from the bad. The, turn to believe, the call to believe is to turn to God and believe Him and trust in Him. We repent from our sin. We believe in God. We turn from our sin. We trust in God. And particularly here, Jesus calls His hearers to believe in the Gospel. Summarize up there, verse 14. The Gospel of God. Gospel means good news. Just believe in the good news. And the good news is this, that Jesus the Messiah has come and He's going to redeem. He's going to save. Believe and trust in Him. It's your only hope. 
Now surely those who first understood this didn't understand the full scope of, of the Gospel like we understand it today. I mean, they understood good news and they understood Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But, but they don't have the perspective of hindsight that we have. You know, maybe you've thought before about, oh, if I only I was one of the disciples, it would have been so good. I said, well, I think it's better for us because we can see everything that Jesus did and all the disciples, what they thought and saw, and we stand at a much better vantage point to understand what was going on with the Gospel. They only stood something of hope. They knew a new day was dawning, but, but they didn't understand like we do that the Gospel meant that, that Jesus was coming to establish a spiritual kingdom. Not an earthly kingdom like they wanted. First, He was going to for, solve the sin problem of people. Right? Bringing the first fruits of the, the kingdom to bear, only later establishing His kingdom as He comes a second time. But He's going to do that by dying upon a cross and, and taking our sin upon Himself. Or to use His language, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Mark 10.45 It was His life for our life. We were bound in our sin. By the grace of God, we were released from our sin through believing in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's the best news you're going to hear today. In fact, it's the best news that you're going to ever hear. That's why it's called the good news. It could be called the best news. It's called the Gospel. And there's hope for our lives in Jesus Christ. Have you turned from your sins? Have you trusted and believed in that Gospel? That is the path of life that He's leading us to. Well, let's press on. His baptism, Jesus identified with us in His temptation. He conquered for us. In His preaching, Jesus leads us to life. Now let's look at the calling of the first four disciples. Verses 16 to 20. As He was going along by the Sea of Galilee, He saw Simon and Andrew, the brothers of Simon, casting a net in the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow Me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. Now in chapter 3, we're going to see Jesus formally calling his twelve disciples. But here is uh, some of the first four begins again a following by, by calling these four fishermen. It's really a remarkable story. Jesus is there walking along the sea. He, he sees these men. They're out working at their trade. They're fishermen by trade. They're either casting nets into the sea or they're repairing their nets so they can cast them in the sea so they can get their, their fish um, so they can provide for their livelihood. And as they're casting nets out into the sea, I mean, they, these nets are probably about 20 feet in circumference with weights on the side, and they kind of throw them out where they think the fish are, and the fish get trapped on the bottom. They've got a big long rope, and someone jumps in and seals it up, and then they pull it up onto the shore, of the, onto the boat itself. And so they're doing that, and in the process of doing that, they get ripped and snagged. Yeah, some are, are mending their nets, and they're, they're, they're just busy about doing their work. Every bit as much as those who are in Lowe's or Home Depot are helping customers or stocking shelves as much as a carpenter is out there building his building, as much as an insurance agent is getting calls, receiving calls, seeking to make some sales, well, whatever. They're, they're doing their business. And he calls out to them using the metaphor that they're involved in, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I don't know what kind of tone of voice he did. Well, they had to call out the loud, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately, these men followed Jesus. Verse 18, immediately they left their nets and followed Him. Verse 20, 
James and John. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee with them and the hired servants and went away to follow him. I've always been amazed at the authority of the voice of Jesus. They can just call out to these men and they'll leave everything to follow him. These men are fishermen by trade and they've been fishermen since the time they were small. They knew this trade. It was going to be what would provide for their livelihood and for their children coming up in the, in the future as well. And they left it all. Simon and Andrew left their nets right there where they were. James and John left their dad right there in the boat. This is a family business. And the sons leave. You can do it, Dad. we got the servants there. You can handle it. We'll see you. Who knows even if they said goodbye. Didn't take any long conversation. Didn't take a long time to really think about it. They just left and followed Him. And by the way, this isn't a one-time thing. It's not just these men. Also Levi. Over in chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus was passing by. He's passing by the tax booth. Where Levi is setting up shop. He's in retail, if you will. The tax. You come and you pay your tax and then you go your way. And... And they were there. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sit in the tax booth. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. I mean, can you imagine Jesus showing up at your work? If you're working at retail, you're behind the counter like Levi was. You're working construction. You're on the job. If you're in an office environment, you're behind your desk, you're on your phone or something, and Jesus enters into your work environment and says, follow me. And He expects you to get up at that moment and go and follow Jesus, leaving your name tag, your tools, your computer, your phone, leaving it all behind and just following Jesus. It's amazing. How did Jesus do this? Well, certainly His voice had authority. I, I don't believe... I, I think also, though, this wasn't their first encounter with Jesus. I, I think that they had knew and known Him and seen something of Him. I think they've heard of Him and I think they've probably seen Him and known Him a bit. But there came a time, quickly, soon, the time of definitive action came. Jesus was ready to call them and they knew they were ready to come and follow Him they did. And the application to us is really simple, I think, in some regards. Jesus calls us to join Him. I mean, just to the disciples. It's not just, oh, well, the disciples can join Jesus, but we can just not join Him. I think by way of application, it... This is what it calls. Now it's different for us because God doesn't expect everyone and follows them to drop their jobs and just go. Jesus had many followers who didn't forsake their occupations who yet still followed him. I mean, a crowd of five thousand people. It's not like big unemployment in the Galilee took place when he had five thousand people hearing him. They didn't. But don't lose the fact that following Jesus is radical. It's going to cost all of us everything. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's pretty radical. If you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself, deny your sins. talking about turning and repenting. You need to take up your cross. That is, you need to take up, up, up the, 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 um, the tool of torture, if you will. Be willing to die and follow me because my life is no longer dear to myself, but it's all dear to God. And that applies to all of us. Deny ourselves, take up a cross, and follow Him. It's the core of repentance, really what it is. Turning from your own sin to follow His life. It extends to all of us. He calls us 
to join Him. But it's interesting here that, that the call here of the disciples is even beyond merely just following Jesus. Jesus made this call, follow Me and I will make you fishers of men. God calls each of us to join Him in the work as well. See, when Jesus promised to build His church, it's not that Jesus is is up there in the sky and then just calls everybody individually just to believe in Him by His audible voice. No. The way He does it, He works through men. He works through disciples. He works through followers of Jesus who've given their life to Christ and then learn His ways and join in following Him. When His disciples were on earth, it, it even wasn't everything was Jesus. Jesus even gave the disciples tasks to do. And they went and did it. There were times they sent them out. He sent them out to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And when Jesus left the earth, He left it in the hands of the disciples to speak forth His name. And Jesus invites us, calls us as well to engage in this work as well of evangelism. People come into the kingdom, they are then to go out and be fishers as well. We are to go out and cast our nets by telling others about Jesus and bring them in as God stirs their hearts, right? Directing them to Jesus. Say, repent and believe in Him. I found life in Jesus. Come, find life in Him. Yes, turn from your sin. Turn from your wicked ways and follow Jesus. It takes hard work. Fishing is hard work. Fishing for souls is much harder work. It takes some effort. It takes effort of knowing people, talking with people, salting your speech with God talk. Just just putting bait out there and seeing if they're interested in the way of eternal life. And some will grab and most will not. Most will say, thank you very much, but that's good, it's good for you, but it's not for me. It's because they don't want to repent of their sins. But you just keep putting it out there. You keep loving people. You keep serving people. You spread the glories of His name. You speak high of God and come and join Him in His work. That's That's what Paul called these first disciples to do. It's what God calls all of us to do is to join Him, not only just by following Him, but joining Him in His work of proclaiming this good news, the Gospel. And I just say that when you're convinced that it's life for your soul, it'll be easy to tell others to do. Well, there's the four events of the life of Jesus as He comes. His baptism, temptation, preaching, and calling of His disciples. Just trust these words will sink deep into our hearts. Let's finish in prayer. Father, I pray that You would cause us to reflect this day upon the life of Christ which moved quickly. I'm I'm sure for all the disciples, three years went by very fast in their minds. And even as we see here just these events of His life come and go and come and go and come and go, I pray that we would catch the significance for all of us. For those who aren't believers in Christ, I pray You'd rip open hearts God, perhaps even of the children here this morning, rip open hearts and just say, I want to follow Christ with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my life. I can't do it on my own. And for those who are, are in difficulty, I pray that they would go to Jesus, the great high priest, who offered His blood and died for us, who is able to help us in temptation in time of trial. I pray that all of us would rejoice in the glorious message of the Gospel. The good news that You've come to save us. That You haven't left us to our own. And that, Lord, we do rejoice. 
And I would pray for Rock Valley Bible Church, especially as I have prayed and we elders have prayed a lot on our knees together before you, just pleading that you would bring fish. That you would help us to be fishers of men who who talk. Don't try to trick people, but try to show them the glories of Jesus and how much better and more satisfying and more happy it is to follow Christ in, in your pleasure, in your presence. Psalm 16, verse 11. Our glories and pleasures forevermore. That's where we ought to delight is in you. And so help us to delight in you in all things that we do. We love you, O Lord, and trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.